I have my uh, Hydra flask because I uh, picked up a little bit of a cold. I would put it on the piano, but I would get scoldings. Oh, and it's slanted too. We're continuing our study through Steps to a Healthy Church, and we've been talking about what a healthy church is, we took two months to do that, and how do we get there? So we've been going through this, and, and uh, you know, the first thing you know, we've talked about is if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to grow from a healthy core of a church. The foundation has to be healthy. If your foundation isn't healthy, then who knows what will result. And then we talked about, um, you know, how do we know? How do we know that? How do we know who, who would be part of this healthy foundation? And, and, and then committing to that, because a lot of it is commitment. And then we, today, are going to talk about counting the cost, the cost of following Christ, the cost of being a disciple, and the cost of being a healthy church. So I wanted to start with this picture. Anybody know what that picture is? Anybody know what that picture is worth? That card is a Pokemon card, and it's apparently Pikachu. I don't know much about Pokemon, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. Everything I got, I got off the internet, so you know it must be true. Um, Pokemon, Pikachu, this card, if you found this in your house lying around, you'd probably throw it away. You'd probably maybe use it as a bookmark. Um, but you certainly wouldn't keep it because it doesn't look that valuable. This card, there's only apparently six that exist. And among Pokemon collectors, uh, they value this at $100,000. $100,000 for a piece of cardboard with a picture on it. I'll tell you that for two reasons. One is, we can't always tell what something's worth just by looking at it. You know, um, I don't want true confessions here, but, but I'm assuming that some of you threw away your kids' comic books because you thought they were worthless. And of course, some of them, if you had like the first Superman, you know, it could be worth well more than $100,000. It's hard to know what something worth just by looking at it. And the second thing is, is that in our world today, we've kind of flipped things. Things that should not really be worth that much are worth a lot. And things that, that should be worth a ton are not worth much at all, at least not in our eyes. And I'm telling you this because I think we have trouble sometimes putting value on the things that God values. When we think about what God finds most precious, what he finds that you should, you should value above all else, not just a little bit more valuable, but vastly more valuable, you know, we don't necessarily see it. We might see it like we see this Pikachu card and we don't really see the value in it. If you look on the back of the notes that are in your program, and, and as we preached on the last, you know, the previous two months, and we looked at what a Romans 12 church is, this surrendered, discipling, humbling, diverse, serving, loving, fruitful, relational, this church focused on, on the good. 
And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it for us at Wiley Baptist Church to be used by God in such a way that, that we're an outpost for his kingdom, that we're a model for his kingdom, that when, when people look at us, they get a glimpse of what God is trying to accomplish. The whole purpose that he created. He didn't create just to create and then we messed it up. He created always with the purpose of, of establishing this kingdom. And the kingdom looks like this. And the question we have to answer, we have to answer before we can go any step farther because the answer to this question will tell you whether you have any hope of being part of the healthy core. Is it worth it? What value do you place on it? This is God's goal, and if it's God's goal, it should have the greatest value in our lives. But I think a lot of people are kind of like, yeah, yeah, those are, those are nice things. Those are good things. I wish that would happen. I hope that happens, but you know, I'm good. I'm good if it doesn't happen, it's okay. And I think sometimes in the church, we have this problem that we do not think that God's plan is worth it. We don't think it's, it's worth all that trouble. And sometimes we don't even know what God's plan is. Some people have just been, again, told the wrong thing about what God's plan is. That God's plan was simply to make you have a good life and, and to help you have a, a fulfilling life. And that was his plan. And that's not his plan. That's part of his plan. That's a means to an end. But it wasn't his plan. His plan was his kingdom. And so some people don't know. They don't know the plan. And some people know it, but they just don't think it's worth it. Or it's not worth as much as it might seem it's going to cost. This is how God does things. Different from us. Okay? He does things this way. He says, commit first. Believe that it's worth it first. Then count the cost. If you're going to say, okay, God, I'm going to count the cost first. I'm going to, I'm going to try to figure out what this is going to take from me and what this, what this will mean for our church. And I'm going to count the cost first. If that's, and then I'll decide whether it's worth following your plan. If that's the case, you will never, let me just underline never, you will never be part of the healthy core. As long as you're trying to think about what it will cost you, then you never will believe that God's plan, God's kingdom, is worth everything. You never will. And again, it's, it's not the way we're brought up. We're brought up to be more pragmatic. We're brought up to be more practical that we should, we should know what something costs before we step into it. Let me give you two numbers. I was too late to give them to our, uh, you know, to put up on our slides, but two numbers. $233,610. 
$430,000. You know what those numbers represent? The first number is the national average of what it will cost you to raise a child born in 2015 to the age of 17. $230,000. The $430,000 is representative of what it will cost you to raise that same child in Hawaii. Do you know what would happen to the U.S. population if we made the decision over where they're having children, if we made it based on the cost? You may have one, but are you really willing to have two? Are you really willing to say, over the next 17 years, I need to commit a million dollars to raising my kids. We had three. Holy smokes. And they're girls. I think they cost more. <laughs> they didn't really do it by gender. No. Anybody who, you know, tries to treat marriage or, or having children and things like that, anyone who tries to, to do it that way, uh, they'll be crazy to have kids. They'll be crazy to get married. No, we, we, we decided it was worth it. Well, sometimes we decided. There are accidents. Um, don't tell your child that they were an accident. But, but we think it's worth it, and we'll do it. Well, when we follow Christ, we believe that his goal, his plan, whether we know it for sure or not, we believe that it's worth it. We believe that no price is too high. So why count the cost? That's the question we're going to answer today. So this text, it comes from the same thing that we've been following, Luke Chapter 14, and you know, we had talked about how in Luke you had, uh, first of all, the scene started with Jesus at a house of a Pharisee, and they were having dinner, and there's a bunch of other Pharisees there, and then you know, he talks a little bit about you know, what it means to follow him, and then, and then he goes to this crowd, and we talked about how, how this, is the, this, is the, this is the time of Jesus mania, that, that the, the crowds love Jesus, that they're, they're flocking to Jesus. And then as the crowds are coming, they want to see his signs, they want, to, they want to hear the latest things, they want to feel good about what he's saying, they want to have hope, and right in the middle of that, he starts to say the hard things. And last week, we talked about how he said, you want to follow me? If you want to follow me, then you have to give up. You have to give up that which you hold most dear. And particularly, he was talking about this, these family relationships. He was saying, family relationships have to be second and not even a close second. You want to follow me? Follow me. When you think about Jesus, when he calls his, his disciples, you know, who, who does he call? Well, he calls James and John. And he calls them while they're in the fishing boats. And this wasn't just like they had a job. This was the family business. When James and John left, 
they left their father. And maybe there were other brothers, maybe there were others helping, but they left him. And they went and they, they followed Jesus. We talked about that last week, and we talked about this, this high cost. And, you know, I'm a little bit like, you know, I, I, thinking like, maybe I'm doing this out of order. Maybe we should have waited till we had big crowds and then, you know, thin the crowds with the hard cost of discipleship. You know, when we just have us and we start hearing this, maybe we get thinner. Maybe people go, no, that's, that's not the Christianity I want. I want the Christianity that just, you know, ends with us all happy and singing and everything's good. But this talk about hating your parents or having your parents feel like you hate them because you are leaving behind all the traditions. You are leaving behind the faith, the culture. You are saying, I will follow Jesus, even if it means, parents, you are going to cut me off. Even though it means the rest of the family is going to think, what an embarrassment I am. I'm going to follow anyways. Well, that was last week. This week he continues, and I hate to break up passages like this, but it just so happened I ended up doing it. But they really belong together. Last week and this week belong together. So this completes that thought. And so he says this in verse 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." He's using these two examples, and, and we shouldn't get too caught up in the examples because the examples are there to make the point, and the point is what he says at the end. You want to count the cost? Here's the cost. Everything. That's the cost. Not some things, not most things, not the majority, not almost everything. The cost is Everything. So why count the cost? Why count the cost? Well, if you've already decided to do it, if you've already decided to go, if you've already decided to be a living sacrifice, you're already there. You already know what it costs. It costs everything. So why count the cost? Well, we count the cost to prepare, not to decide. To follow Jesus, the decision is already made. To be the church that God's called us to be, the decision should already be made. We're not, we're not counting the cost so we can decide whether we want to do it or not. Again, if you're still sitting on the fence, then you will never, ever 
be part of the healthy core because you will never believe it will require what it requires. And you'll always want to hold back. We count the cost to prepare for what lies ahead. We count the cost so that we don't start building a tower and we're not able to finish it. We count the cost so that if we, like this king, have to go to, to war, we know what we have to do. And if we have to, maybe we don't go to war at all. That's the question. If the cost is everything, the question always comes back to, is it worth, is it worth it to be a healthy church? If it is, if you really understand that for whatever weird, strange reason, God said, I've got this plan. And what's kind of key to my plan is that I'm going to bring together people from all different backgrounds, different genders, different socioeconomic classes, different education levels, different family lives, different ethnicities. I'm going to bring them all together. I'm going to unite them by my spirit. And when they are a healthy church, the rest of the world is going to see what I can do. I still think that's a crazy plan. I still think, sometimes, God, you must have had a better way. Why this way? Why us? But it's his plan. It's his plan. And the plan is not like, this is a plan. This is a possible solution. It's no. It is the solution. If you're worried about how terrible our culture is coming, about how, how our society seems to be falling apart, how people are becoming more polarized and more vicious and more divided, if you're worried about that, the hope, the only hope, is that the world sees what happens when God gets a hold of people and changes their lives in such a way that he unites them. And he unites them with this this crazy, crazy, radical, supernatural love that unites people who have no earthly business being together, that, that unites people and helps them overcome their differences, helps them overcome their disagreements, helps them overcome their hurt feelings, that he holds them together. Is it worth it? Because if it's not worth it, I sometimes wonder, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? You could be watching football right now. You could be at the beach. You could be getting ahead on your Christmas shopping. There's so many other things you could be doing. But if we believe it's worth it, if we believe it's worth it, it doesn't matter the cost. You gotta answer that question. Maybe you're not to the point you can answer that question yet because you don't really know what it is. Maybe you're not spending enough time seeing how broken our world is. And our world didn't just suddenly become broken. Anybody that tells you that, that Donald Trump ushered in some, some, some era of, of incivility in this world hasn't been paying attention. The world's been that way for a long time. 
It's not new. Stop acting like it's new. Just because you started paying attention doesn't mean it started existing. It's been there. You know, when, 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 when Jesus comes into the world, you know what's holding most of the Western world and parts of even into Asia Minor and into Africa, you know what's holding it together? The Roman Empire. Do you know what helps break apart the Roman Empire? Christianity. Because Christianity offers another way. Rome said, this is the way to peace. We are so powerful, our military is so powerful, we will conquer you and we will keep you conquered. And you will get along. Try not to get along. We'll come in and knock some heads or worse. Christianity came with a different way of holding people together. Christianity is fading in its influence in this world. Guess what's coming back? Guess what will have to take its place to hold people together? You think it's going to be love and peace and those of you old enough to remember the age of Aquarius? Is that what you think? No. It will be somebody or a bunch of somebodies coming to power and forcing you to get along. It's the only hope. Maybe you need to pay attention more to what's going on in the world. Maybe you need to read a little bit more, you know, in terms of, you know, what's going on in, in our society. And maybe we need to understand more about what God's solution is, about what the kingdom really is. And maybe then we'll say, yeah, God, it's worth it. What I see in this text, it's, you know, I see like this tower and the foundation and talking about the resources and I see the part about the king and making sure you have enough men and if you don't have enough men, do you have some other strategy? What this tells me is that it's important for Christians not just to be idiots. We don't just blindly go ahead and say, oh, we're just going to go. You should know the numbers. You should know what you're up against. But you should also know it's not about the numbers. We talked about Gideon from the Old Testament, how Gideon knew the numbers. You know, Gideon looked at how many Midianites there were, and then Gideon looked at like the tens of thousands that came when he called and said, let's go fight the Midianites. He knew the numbers. And then what did God do? He changed the numbers. And he didn't change the numbers the way we think he should. What we think he should have done was make there be fewer enemy, fewer Midianites. But no, he changed the number of Israelites. He went from 10,000 plus to 300. You see, the numbers matter. It's important that we know the situation we're in. It's important that we know what we face. But we also need to know that winning or losing the battle, it's not up to us. And we need to know that when God's in our, on our side, no battle is unwinnable. Here's what we need to make sure. 
We need to make sure that the battles we're fighting are the battles that God wants us to fight. I think part of the problem the church has had is that, is that they either don't fight at all, they just kind of sit on the side and act like, oh, you know, we're not supposed to say anything, we're not supposed to upset anybody, we're not supposed to get in the middle of anything, so they just sit on the side and do nothing. Or they do the opposite, they jump into every fight. They think every fight is, is a fight, you know, worth having. No, we need to make sure Do you know why Gideon, with 300 people, 300 men, could defeat the vast Midianite army? Because he was fighting God's battle. We also need to know that the path to winning, the path to winning doesn't always involve fighting. You know, everybody likes the one that's, you know, down there about the kings and all that. But sometimes it involves building. We want to advance God's kingdom. It's not about let's go to Kahala Mall and, and, you know, share the gospel with everybody there. We want to do that. That's great. Do it. It's not about going door to door. You know what it starts with? It starts by building a foundation right here. In this place. With you. And others God might bring us. It's not always about their out there fighting. We need to see that no battle is unwinnable, but we also need to understand that we don't always get to see the victory. We might be at some other stage, some earlier stage, where we don't get to see it. Paul writes in another letter, he says, you know, some people sow and some people reap. Some people plant. Some people tend. And we all want to be the one who who reaps. And if we can't be the one who reaps, who harvests, who gets to actually see the results and benefit from the results, we want to be the person at the beginning that starts it. We want to be one of those two. Very few people say, I want to be the one in the middle that wasn't there at the exciting beginning and never gets to see how it ends. We don't want to be that person. We want to be at the beginning or the end. We want to be somewhere where we're starting something and we're going. We're the founding fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. Or we want to be at the end where we're like, oh, we get to see the victory. We get to see the reward. Not necessarily. Our job is to do our part, what God has called us to do, to be who he has called us to be in this time and in this place. We, we can't be the Wiley Baptist Church of 1970 or 1980 or 2030. We need to be the healthiest Wiley Baptist Church we can be right now in 2018. 2019 and 2020. That's what we need to do. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. I don't know if it means in two or three years, this, this place we have five services and we've, you know, we're talking about you know, knocking down the walls and building a better, bigger place. Or I don't know if it means that we have to be exactly what we are 
right now. Because we still got to get that healthy part right. I don't know what it means. I just know that when I know that if I'm fighting God's battles and that God's battles, any battle he fights, he's going to win, I know that no matter what I'm doing, no matter what role I have to play, whether I was at the beginning, somewhere in the middle, or near the end, I keep fighting. Because I know eventually God will win. And that's why, that's why Jesus says at the end, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We have to be willing to give everything. But we need to understand something because the reason we have a hard time giving everything is because we think we have a lot to give. But in the big picture, it's really not enough. When I say everything, I mean everything. I mean, it's our, our, our vision, our future, our hopes, our dreams, our relationships, everything. We renounce our ownership over those things. God doesn't always demand them. He doesn't always say, I require them of you. But we let go of them. We say they're his to do with as he wishes. But we kind of get this messed up because we think that what we're bringing is much more than what is really required. Some of you who are older and smarter, and you know Michael Jordan was the greatest NBA player of all time. And, and you know, in, in the NBA, if you score 100 points in a game, um, I mean, if, if the team scores 100 points in a game, that's a lot of points. Well, there was one game where Michael Jordan scored 69 points. That's a ton, a ton of points. And one of his teammates, his name was Stacy King, one of his teammates said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. How many points did Stacy King score? One. He knew it. He was joking. He's being goofy. But that's how we are sometimes. We're like, I'll never forget. This was the night. God and I combined to score 70 points. Really? Really? Who's, even if we bring everything we are, even if we bring every second of our lives, even if we bring all of our resources, all of our talents and everything in comparison to God, it's not 69 points to one. So much less. But why does God say then? Why does God, who could do it all himself, why does he want our measly little one point? Why? Well, it's because when we give God everything, when we have the attitude that it is all his, it changes our attitude toward everything. 
You see, God is not interested in our stuff. He's not interested simply in our abilities and our time. Yeah, he says, I want you to make them available. And to some people, like the rich young ruler, he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But he's interested in our hearts. He's interested in our attitudes. You see, when we see everything is ours, a couple of things happen. One is, we think that we're giving something to God that's not his. It's all God's. And the other thing is in our desire to possess things, those things begin to possess us. See, when we give everything to God, when we, when we relinquish our ownership, our rights to, to everything, it, it frees us. Our possessions no longer possess us. And it changes our attitude. See, our attitude our, toward our stuff is not simply that it's our stuff. It's not simply that's my house or that's my car or that's my family or, or that's my career or, or whatever it is. Instead of saying, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, I'm going to give some of it to God. Instead, we, we look at our house, we look at our car, we look at our career, we look at our education, we look at our talents, and we say, God, how can you use these? How can you use them? Not, oh, maybe I'll let you use them, I'll let you borrow them. No. Our attitude changes. God, how can you use my marriage? How can you use my family? How can you use my house? How can you use my car? How can you use my career? How can you use my friendships? How can you use my business? How can you use my talent, my experience, my education? We're free from the possessions that possess us. And they're available to be used by the kingdom. They're available to be used by God in whatever way he wants. You see, just like with, he's talking about last week, about you have to be willing to follow him so that it's like you hate your parents. It's like you hate your family. It's because once we get that right, once we get where Jesus needs to be in our lives, I suddenly look at my family in a different way. I no longer look at my family as my family. I no longer look at my marriage as my marriage. I say, okay, God, how are you going to use it? And that changes. And it actually makes my marriage better. If I think about marriage, and I think like part of being married, married as Christians is that we become another outpost in neighborhoods for Christ's love for the church, that people see that as a signpost, as a, as a symbol, no matter where they are. If I, if I understand that, if I understand that I should, I should love my wife as Christ loves the church, that is going to make my marriage better, not worse. Some things God's going to require and he's going to use and other things he's going to leave them in your hands. But because your attitude has changed towards them, they become better. 
Your car doesn't possess you anymore. Your house doesn't possess you anymore. You're not obsessed with your, your bank accounts and your investments and your financial statements. No. They're God's. And he may never require them of you. But he frees you from being possessed by them. And so we count the cost. We count the cost of following Christ. Again, not to decide whether to follow him. That decision needs to be made before we know the cost. We prepare. We prepare by counting the cost. And we follow now. Counting the cost is not a complicated way of delaying. Oh, I'm still, still figuring it out. I'm still counting the cost. No. We follow. We prepare as we, as we follow. We know what it will take. We see what it will take. And what we should realize is that it, even though what needs to be offered is everything, that it will require more than our everything. And when it requires more than our everything, we keep moving because we trust that he will provide the more than our everything. You know, I've, I've been watching this commercial and it comes on <clears throat> way too much. And, and it's this really heartwarming commercial about how if everybody, you know, how we can make the world a better place is if, if, if everybody just does a little bit. If everybody does a little bit. And again, it's a really sweet commercial and, and you know, I, I watch it and I think, oh, that's kind of a good thought. But when I started studying this, I realized it's wrong. We're not going to make the world a better place by all of us thinking, if I just do a little bit, that'll make a big difference. No. It's that we offer everything. Not a little bit, but everything. We want to be a healthy church? Well, we know what a healthy church looks like. Do we think it's worth it? And if it's worth it, are we willing to give all that we have to make available to God all that we are, even those habits we have, even those attitudes we have towards certain kinds of people and other particular people? Are we willing? If so, I don't have any doubt that God will do great things 